turn to uh, the Gospel of John. You can see that we're uh, doing a series on the Gospel of John as staff. And I believe that there's nothing like life and death situations that help us to recalibrate, to rethink about life itself. You know, crisis is one of the most fundamental means that helps bring us to a realization that we are all weak and needy. Ultimately, it brings us to a faith in Christ that leads to lasting transformation in our lives. I was reading the other day a story of a young mother, you know, who had kind of rebelled against her Christian upbringing, and she wrote these words that happened not too long ago. It said, on January the 5th, 2009, there I stood by my daughter's gravesite. And at that moment, I surrendered my life to Jesus Christ. I had prayed with a pastor of a local church we had never really been a part of. And I had thought about God a lot since that day that Taylor, my daughter, left this planet. The moment came at the burial when I thought, this is it. I need God, and I need him right now. At that moment, it all came to me. Taylor was sent by God so that it would literally change my life, my husband's life, and my entire family. You know, Randy Alcorn writes a very interesting book, and I don't know, I, I actually recommended this book. The librarians asked me to recommend some books, and this is one I recommend you reading. The book is entitled, If God is Good. And it kind of deals with all the issues of why God allows evil and suffering in the world. I think that's a great uh, thing for us to, to know about. And he says this in the book, Armies and hospitals have chaplains, while political victories and Academy Award celebrations don't. I mean, notice that. And he says, you ever wonder why that is? And he, and he says the answer is because hospitals and battlefields offer a clear view of death while celebrations obscure it. You know, death serves to draw attention to what really matters in life, the state of our soul, and the God and the people who will outlast this life. Death is a wake-up call, a reminder that our time here is fleeting and that each one of us can expect that we will someday encounter that intruder. Ecclesiastes says it this way, a good name is better than fine perfume and the day of death better than the day of birth. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to a house of feasting. For death is the destiny of every man. The living should take this to heart. In other words, the, the writer to the Ecclesiastes that we know as uh, the book of Ecclesiastes challenges us to think about our own mortality. And it's something that we try to avoid as a culture. How many notice where we just try not to focus on this whatsoever? Yet this unwanted intruder eventually will shatter our world. The Bible, however, takes a different view. Death, that final enemy, is the one that Christ came to defeat. Death can be a compass, as I already said, to recalibrate our bearings in this life. Often we avoid the issue and don't take it into consideration. We become engaged as if this life was all there is. But we know that that's not true. Do you know one of the challenges living in a society such as ours, prosperous, with all the technology and all the 
wonderful things that we get to enjoy in life. And by the way, if you read through, I'm reading through Ecclesiastes a lot recently, and, and we're reminded in the book of Ecclesiastes that the, really the aim of life is to actually enjoy it. That it's a gift from Almighty God, but, but not to enjoy it to such a degree that we forget about God or we forget about what's really important. But that's a temptation that we all struggle with. Do you know prosperity has a, a way of dulling us? I don't know if you realize that. The good life many times hinders us from the best life. And we can easily become indifferent to the things of God. As a matter of fact, in the book of Hosea, uh, it says this. When I fed them, God is speaking. When I fed God, he's talking about his own people. They were satisfied. And when they were satisfied, they became proud and forgot me. Folks, that's a danger we are all faced with, especially in this culture. Deuteronomy chapter 8, Moses is warning the people. He says, when you go into the promised land, when you go into that land that flows with milk and honey, when all the blessings come your way, be very careful not to forget God. So there's a temptation in prosperity, isn't there? And that temptation is that we just get consumed with the good life and we forget about God. Anybody ever had that experience? That we're tempted down this, this track? Of course, we're all tempted down this track. So when trials come, when struggles challenge us, we need to mature to the place where we can see them not as an enemy, but as an ally to help us grow in our faith in God. And so, uh, I think a lot of people begin to question God when things get difficult. Isn't that true? Maybe that's where you're at. Maybe you're going through a difficult time today. Maybe you're wondering, God, where are you in this mess? You know, if God really cares, why is he allowing these things in my life? These are all thoughts that flood our minds in challenging moments. Some people wonder if God's punishing them. The Bible, however, paints a totally different picture of trials. Rather than them being seen as a negative, the Bible pictures them as a positive. Now that's a very shocking statement to us because we don't see it that way, do we? We don't have that kind of an evaluation. We don't always look at life through the lens that God wants us to see life through. You know, one of the things I try to help people with, when we come to the place in our life where we realize that trials and tribulations are normal, then we don't get uptight about them. But if we think that trials and tribulations are abnormal and God's people should never experience them, then we'll, we'll wonder, what, what is God doing here? Why are these things happening in my life? As a matter of fact, the book of James says it this way, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kind. Now, isn't that our, the way you look at, at difficulties in life? You just go, wow, I'm so excited about this difficulty right now. I'm rejoicing in it. But, you know, the Bible does say in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning us, right? Doesn't he say that? And that we're to, we're to rejoice in these things. And, you know, I, I'm going to tell you something that's going to maybe try to encourage you a little bit about your challenges that you're faced with right now. That they have been actually designed by God specifically for you and for me, and he knows exactly what he's doing and shaping us into the image of his son. We need to believe that. That all things work together for good, including the things that we consider negative. God is going to use these things because he's trying to do something 
that's going to make us a better person through that experience. In James, he goes on to say this. The reason why we count a joy is because you know that the testing of your faith does what? It develops something. It develops perseverance. Do you think that our culture today is noted for its perseverance? I don't think so. I think we live in a very impatient culture. We live in a very superficial culture. I don't think we're very strong. I, I don't think perseverance is one of our earmarks. I don't think people are highly committed today. But you see, trials develop something inside of us. And James says the first thing it develops is it develops a faith in God that can persevere no matter what comes our way. Then he goes on to say, but perseverance must finish its work so that you may be what? That you may be mature. So God is moving us from a state of immaturity. We have an immature faith, a weak faith, a little faith, to a place where we grow in our faith and we become mature in our faith and we become complete. Not lacking anything. Wow. So he says, listen, trials have a value. And that's what James is telling us. Now, many of you are in, or maybe faced with trial right now, and you're going, I don't see the value in this, Pastor. And I'm trying to point out to you, there's a value in it. You know, how many know that if you do not exercise your muscles, what will happen to your body? It will atrophy. It will get weaker and weaker. And so, one of the things, you know, exercise, some of you say I'm allergic to it, but, you know, exercise has a value. How many say, realize, how many know intellectually exercise has a value? And the value of exercise is that it's causing, you know, resistance to our body. And that resistance is building up strength in our body. Isn't that true? And actually, there's a lot of positive elements regarding exercise. Do you know, I was just looking at some positive exercise uh, reasons for uh, exercising. One of them is it actually is mood-altering. Do you know when you're exercising, it's releasing chemicals in your body that gives you a greater state of well-being. Now, we're living in a culture today that a lot of people are battling discouragement, depression, right? And so a lot of people are taking medication so they can feel better. And, you know, I'm, I'm just trying to challenge us. Just on the physical level, if we exercise, that may help our bodies. Okay? But when we're exercising, you may be going, I, I may or may not be enjoying this. But after you start doing it after a while, your body starts to enjoy exercising. When you first start, it doesn't enjoy it. I can just guarantee you right now, it's not going to enjoy that. It's going to say, what in the world are you doing? Right? But if you keep doing it, eventually your body adjusts to it and becomes like, hey, how come we're not exercising? And I'm trying to bring out this idea that in our faith life, when we have trials, it's like exercise. It's not a bad thing. At first when we have them, we go, what in the world's going on? Doesn't God love me or care about me? But eventually we start to wonder, you know, where's the resistance to my faith so I can keep growing and developing this faith life? Randy Alcorn says this, and I really like this statement. Uh, okay, well, I'm going backwards. Let's go forward. To hate suffering is easy. I mean, no, that's easy. I hate suffering, right? To hate sin is not. 
In other words, our natural human instinct is, I enjoy doing the, you know, like a lot of times I want these things and some of these things aren't good for me, right? And that's what sin is like. But to hate suffering is not easy. Or sorry, is easy. We don't, we don't like it when we're suffering. We don't like difficulty in our lives. The natural man draws back from suffering and embraces sins, whereas as we grow in our faith, like we begin to see the value of the struggles that cause us to see that this life as it really is. You know, suffering gives us a right perspective of life. Because I think sometimes we get a wrong perspective of life. The spiritual man sees the nature of sin as it really is. To see past sin seductions and realizes the depths of despair that it produces. You know, sin is alluring and seductive and, it, and we embrace it and it's good for a moment. But when we get past that initial season of, of enjoyment, what happens? We begin to eat and we get the fruit of it and it begins to be destructive to our soul and to people around us. So that's one thing that we you know, start realizing when we're a spiritual person that, yeah, this may look enticing, it's promising a lot, but it's not gonna give us what we really long for in our souls. So suffering, with, when embraced with the right attitude, can have amazing results. Now listen to what Peter says about suffering. He says, therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourself also with the same attitude. So what is he saying? Be prepared to suffer. Just accept that suffering is a part of life. That's what Peter's telling you to do. That's what I'm trying to communicate to you this morning. Just get that in your system. That's part of life. Because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. In other words, suffering has a way to temper sin in our lives. That's, what, that's the value of suffering. It actually makes us realize, you know what, sin isn't a good thing. As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires. I mean, we're either living for a desire to please God or we're living for sinful, evil desires. There's only two motivations. And suffering has a way of moving you away from living for this world alone. And you begin to live for the glory of God. That's what Peter's talking about. Now, in our text this morning, we have a man coming to Jesus because his family's in crisis. We're going to identify with this guy. You know, how many can say that it was a personal crisis that brought you initially to Christ? I can say that. That's what brought me to Jesus, crisis. How many can say in this room right now that crisis in your life has actually drawn you to Christ, that your prayer life has gone up when you're in crisis? How many start praying a little more than you normally pray? How many begin to realize that it was during a time of crisis that you developed a depth in your life you did not have before? You moved from a very superficial understanding of God to a far deeper understanding of God because you walked through a time of deep trial and difficulty and crisis in your life. How many can say that's true? Yeah. As a matter of fact, I've learned more in times of sorrow, suffering, trial, and difficulty than I ever have in times of great blessing, great honor, and great favor. As a matter of fact, many times the blessings and the good things of life actually created a false sense of security in my soul, and sometimes I even got a little puffed up, a little arrogant, a little proud. Anybody else relate to this? Or am I the only culprit that's gone through these things? 
You know, I was actually meeting with a pastor. I hadn't seen in years. Actually, he's not, he's not, he's not a pastor, actually, he's, but he's a Christian minister, educator. And uh, we had an amazing conversation, and he said to me, you know, I rarely share the story, but he shared some of the deep anguish in his soul, some of the sufferings that he had walked through that had totally changed his life. And you know, I wonder if the reason why he shared that, and we were sitting there chatting, was because I have gone through that experience in my life. And so there was a sense of identity. And at the very end, we could sit down and I could pray for him. Because I knew what it was like to walk through a season of deep darkness, sorrow, loss, pain. All of a sudden, you have a greater degree of understanding, of empathy. You've just been deepened by Almighty God, by that experience. Well, the main purpose of John's gospel is to bring us face-to-face with Jesus. I like that. And what happens when we become face-to-face with Jesus, transformation begins to occur in our lives. And so earlier in John chapter 4, we find Jesus ministering to a community in Samaria that absolutely embraces him as Savior. The Samaritan woman at the well, I talked about this a couple of weeks ago, and how the whole community of Sychar came out and they declared him to be their Savior. In chapter 4, verse 42, this is the conclusion of that episode. It says, then, said the wo- then they said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you have said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Wow, isn't that a great declaration? You know, John is writing years later. He's trying to bring a point across, and the Samaritans so quickly embrace Jesus. And then he moves on back to the ministry that Jesus had with his own people. We pick it up in verse 43, and this is the beginning of our text this morning. After two days, it says, he left for Galilee. So he had been in Samaria for a few days as he was moving from Judea, which is further south. He's moving north. He's moving back to Galilee. He's passed excuse me, through Samaria. There's been a great uh, meeting, an encounter at this little town called Sychar. The people embrace him as Savior. And now he's coming back into Galilee. And then John gives this little parenthetical thought. If you turn there to John 4, you'll see it in brackets. It says, now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. You know, in the other Gospels, when we read that statement, it's Jesus speaking about in his own hometown of Nazareth. But here, it just says his own country, his own people group. He's talking about the Jewish people in comparison, I believe, to the Samaritan. Like, the Samaritans eagerly embraced him. Now he's back among his own. And how are they going to respond to him? It says in the next verse, when he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had, all, they had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, for they had also been there. So John now is bringing us geographically back to Galilee. We're about to witness another significant miracle. And you know what's interesting? It's at the same place he turned the water into wine. He brings us back to Cana. And here in our text today, we're going to find some powerful steps that lead from crisis to transformation. I believe that Jesus wants to take the crises in our lives and transform those experiences into something other than where we're at today. Often difficulties, pressures, disturbing situations, you know what they tend to do? They tend, the temptation is to paralyze us. Isn't that true? Immobilize us neutralize us. What do we do in crisis? 
You know, John Maxwell shared a message years ago saying, and it was entitled, What to Do in Crisis. He said, often in crisis, our emotions take over. How many know that's, have you ever noticed that? Emotions kick in big time, right? And he says, we all succumb to our emotions at one point or another, and we probably will again. He says, you know when you're emotionally hooked, when your emotions are in control, and you no longer can think logically. You know, you ever had those moments in life where you're, you know, you're, you're, you just did not think logically. You're in a state of shock. I remember years ago, I was driving down a highway, and I was, on, I was actually on a freeway, and I hit a deer at 70 miles an hour. Well I, well, I was driving 70 miles an hour. I saw three deer jump out on the freeway, and I tried to slow down as much as I can. I thought I was going to miss them, but one of them jumped up and met me. Landed on my head, slid across the windshield. I thought, you know, this deer is going to come through, you know. And fortunately, he did, and he slid back down. I got the car stopped. I got out. I wasn't hurt. Of course, you know, the radiators all kicked in by the hooves, and it's draining like crazy. And the next thing I know, this guy pulls in behind me, and he's a park ranger. And he pulls out his revolver. And in my mind, I'm thinking... Listen, mister, I didn't mean to kill that deer. <laughs> I thought he was going to shoot me. <laughs> what was wrong? I was in a state of shock. My mind was not working correctly, right? And he walked over and shot the deer because apparently he was still alive. <laughs> and gave me a ride to the next place. But at that moment, I thought, there goes my life, and I didn't even mean to do it. <laughs> Peter reminds us during our times of testing, to turn to Christ and not let our emotions go unchecked. The struggles, the sufferings, the testings are designed to make us stronger. As a matter of fact, in 1 Peter, it says this, cast all your cares or anxiety on him because why? He cares for us. And then he goes on to say, be self-controlled and alert. Now that's not normally our response to trial, is it? Self-control. But he tells us, First of all, cast it to God. Secondly, be self-controlled and alert. He says, why? he says, because the enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Stand firm in the faith because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. In other words, we're not alone in this. This is not unusual. This is not just myself going through this. Many people are walking through things similar to my experience. There are people around the world serving Jesus going through the same thing. There are people right now walking where you're walking. And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while. I want you to highlight that in your Bible. Put that down. Suffer a little while. In other words, it's going to come to an end some point. The suffering is not going to be maintained. It's going to be a season. It's going to be a dark time. It's going to be, you know, like going through a tunnel, not driving into a cave. While himself restore you and make you what? Strong, firm, and steadfast. See the fruit of it. The fruit of our difficulty, the fruit of suffering, is designed not to destroy us, not to punish us, not to, you know, it's, it's designed to strengthen our faith. Trials exercise our faith in order to give us spiritual strength. It's interesting in our text that this is exactly why this official 
who realizes his son is in a medical emergency. His son is dying. John tells us in the text that Jesus is now back in Galilee, and as soon as the man hears this, he quickly goes to where Jesus is. Verse 46. Once more he visited Canaan, Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine, and there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. Now, Capernaum is about 25 miles from Cana. Capernaum is right there. I, I've been to Capernaum, you know, a number of times, and it's right on the Sea of Galilee. And the Sea of Galilee, by the way, is about 700 feet below sea level. And so you have these mountain, you know, the, the lake is low, and those mountainsides climbing up on all sides. And there, you know, this official says, I've got to get to Jesus. I know that he can do something. And he heads off to Cana. Now, I need to say this, that not all crisis leads to faith. For some, crisis only leads to despair and distrust. But when our focus is only on the problem, and when we focus on our pain, and we, get our, we, we, we just camp there, then we start drowning. And we've all had those moments where we're drowning in pain and drowning in sorrow. Drowning in loss. But eventually we have to take our eyes off our problem. We have to take our eyes off ourselves and we got to get our eyes on Jesus. You know, we have a tendency to resist change. I, I say that a lot in this church, but it's the reality. We all struggle with it. I remember years ago when John Maxwell was preaching on how change comes about in people's lives. And he said there's only three motivations for change. And he said... Uh, the first one is simply that when we learn enough, it empowers us to change. Sometimes we have a lack of information. We don't know what to do. But when we get the right information, it can help us to change. And then he says sometimes we, when we hurt enough, it motivates us to change. You know, pain has a way of making us realize we cannot go on this way. Something's got to give. Something's got to change. And pain is a great motivator towards change. Isn't that true? Absolutely. And then finally, we grow enough, we're able to change. You know, sometimes we just don't have the ability to change. We need to grow. And so God wants us to grow. God is committed to our growth. Isn't that awesome? He doesn't just save us from our sins. He's saving us so that we can develop and grow and become the person that God designed us to ultimately become. That is a beautiful thought to me. We're moving in a direction. It's a journey that we're on with him. As we're about to see, this man is motivated because this crisis is moving him outside his comfort zone. I'm sure if his little boy was not dying, he would have never gone to Jesus. But because of the crisis, and because he probably tried everything else, he realized he was desperate, and he, he had heard that you know, Jesus was doing things that were absolutely amazing, miracles were happening, and he was so desperate, he moved towards Jesus. Now, it's interesting that John in this text, you know, I, I did a little something. I took the Greek text this week, copied it out, and looked at all of the verbs, you know, and I wanted to get an idea, what is John really trying to emphasize in the story? And one of the things he emphasizes is the fact that Jesus came. And I started to think about that. When Jesus comes on the scene, things change. 
When you and I get our minds off our problems and we begin to focus in on God, something begins to happen in that situation. It is a very powerful thing. You can have two people experiencing the same thing side by side, but when Jesus breaks in to their heart and mind, something begins to happen in that situation. And John is trying to tell us that when Jesus comes on the scene, something is about to happen. And this is exciting to me. And so that should give us a desire that you and I would get into the presence of God, that we would seek Christ, that we would you know, realize that that's the source where transformation and change is gonna happen. And then we read in the story that he comes to Jesus. And then he says, he begs him to come with him in order to heal his son. And that word beg there is in a continuous tense. In other words, he doesn't just ask him. He is literally entreating Jesus. He's, it's a continuous action. He's begging Jesus, please, you have to come. There's a sense, I want you to get in the story, that this man is in a desperate situation. He's not gonna take no for an answer. That's what you need to hear. You know what strikes me in so many of the stories of Jesus' miracles? Not all of them, but in many of them, the people had to persist in order for God to move or for Christ to act. What we need to understand is that faith in God makes what is impossible possible. God is moved by faith. Isn't that true? Because faith pleases God. As a matter of fact, the book of Hebrews says without faith it's impossible to please God. We have to believe that first of all God exists. And then secondly, that God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. God likes it when we pursue him. God likes it when we're engaged with him. There's something powerful that begins to happen in our lives. You know, and I was thinking of another story that Matthew records of a Canaanite woman whose daughter was demonized. And Jesus, you know, ignores her. It's amazing. He didn't even answer her. He, he was literally silent to her request. And how many here in this room have felt like, you know, there's times in my life when I've prayed and it felt like God was silent. He didn't answer. He didn't do what I asked. How do we handle the silences of God? Do we give up or do we persist? Notice her response to the silence as she's crying out for help. It says, Jesus did not answer a word, so his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away, for she keeps crying out to us. You get the same idea, that same urgency, that same persistence that, the, that this official is doing now towards Jesus. There's a similarity in these stories. There's a parallelism that's happening here. And his answer to her was that he was not sent to the lost sheep of Israel. But you know this woman wouldn't take no for an answer. You know why she wouldn't? Because she was desperate. Crisis is a vehicle that brings out amazing faith in us. It really does. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. Once again, Jesus tries to discourage her. Or is he really trying to bring out something from within her? Because he says this, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. And so what does she say to that? She says, yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. <laughs> she has an answer. She goes, listen, I may be a dog, but even dogs get crumbs. Just give me a crumb and I'll be satisfied. Because a crumb from your hand is more than from anybody else's. 
And you know what Jesus said? Woman, you have great faith. He didn't just say, woman, you have you know, faith. You have great faith. And this was a woman that wasn't even a Jew. She was a Canaanite woman. He said, your request is granted and her daughter was healed from that very hour. Here's, and I want to encourage you. She was before Jesus. Her daughter was at home. Jesus said, she's healed. And that was exactly the moment. You know what? Distance means nothing to God. Distance means nothing to Jesus. When he speaks the word, it happens. Friends, when I pray in red deer and God hears my cry in heaven, he can answer my prayer for someone in India. Is that amazing? And it can happen the moment I pray, God can answer. What an encouraging thought. So what is Jesus' response to this nobleman? Look at verse 48. He says, unless you people see miracle, miraculous signs and wonders, you'll never believe. Now, you know what, Jesus, it almost seems like he's discouraging this guy. But remember, he's in a state of desperation. This is not going to stop him. He's going to keep entreating, praying, pleading. Do you know, I think Jesus is really concerned that the focus is not so much on what we can do for, what he can do for us. It's more that we got to get to the place to realize who he really is. Because, you know, all of the pagan religions in the world is really a, a, a means of trying to manipulate the gods to do what we want. And you know, sometimes in Christianity, we play the same game. We try to get God to do what we want. We're trying to manipulate God to do our thing. We try to develop an understanding of the gospel so that it makes our life prosperous and healthy and secure and good with no problems. And folks, that's not what it's about. I want you to understand that biblical Christianity is about you and I getting in on God's page, getting into God's purposes, living on God's agenda for our lives. Because God's plan and purpose is far different than when we first met Jesus. I'll tell you that. None of us had an idea when we first came to Christ what we were getting into. True? Absolutely. But God's plan is better than ours. And when we get into eternity and we're seeing him face to face, we're going to go, boy, you were the all-wise God. You knew exactly what you were doing. You know, a lot of us forfeit a lot of joy in life because we're not satisfied with what God's currently blessing us with. And we're trying to, you know, trying to achieve something other than what God's currently doing in our lives. Now, I don't think it's wrong to pray. I, I believe in prayer. And I believe that he wants to bring things out like what we're seeing in these stories because he allows these crises to come into our lives, so we will pray. But I like what Don Carson points out. He says, the welcome of the Galileans displayed was so dependent on miracles, unlike the faith of the Samaritans. Therefore, on visiting Cana and being petitioned to perform a healing, Jesus detects in the royal official a welcome and a faith that desires a cure but does not truly trust him. In other words, truly trust Jesus. He's just going, I need a favor. I don't need you, Jesus. I just need the miracle. That's what he's getting across here. Now, I think that the royal official, despite all of this discouragement, despite the rebuke, He's in such a desperate situation. He says, sir, come down before my child dies. That's the other part that John is focusing in on. This child was dying. His little boy was dying. He was desperate. He needed help. 
There's nothing that moves the heart of a caring parent than to see their child suffer. The father is motivated out of love for his child. This man's only hope is Jesus, and he, he's not going to take no for an answer. Jesus, in teaching on prayer, talks about the need for persistence. I love the story of the parable of the, un, the widow and the unjust judge. You're probably aware of it. I've shared it a lot here. It goes something like this. <clears throat> then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not to give up. Then he tells the story about a widow who had no, no, no social leverage, who came to a judge who was powerful, but he was unjust, could have cared less about it. He said, didn't fear God nor man. But he said, because of her continuous petition, she was wearing the guy out. He says, I'll give in to her. Now Jesus' point is, she kept coming. She was persistent. And then he goes on to say this, and will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? In other words, this is a parable of contrast where he's showing he's unlike the unjust judge. God is a just judge. God does hear our cry. God will answer speedily. But then he raises this point, and this is the point of the parable. Remember verse one, men are always to pray, women are always to pray, and what? Not give up. Then he says, will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Persistent prayer is a demonstration of our faith. Continuing to trust God in the midst of our adversity, trial, and difficulty is an expression of faith. That's how faith grows, folks. That's what we need to understand. So in this room right now, we're going through trial. And what I'm saying to you this morning is that this is God's tool to help faith develop in our life. Are we getting it? How many are beginning to see that this is not God being a bully, God's not being mean, God's not uncaring, God's not unkind. God is loving, God is kind, God is compassionate, God is good, God is listening, but God is developing. And you and I need to understand something. God has an agenda in every one of our lives, and we need to understand that he's going to use the variety of trials in our lives to do something profound and deep and powerful within us. He's going to strengthen our faith. So persistence in prayer is seen as a powerful expression of faith. Let me move on to the second point, and it's just simply this. The crisis that leads to transformation, it brings us to faith in God's word. It's only as we put our trust in what God says that we really have faith grow in our lives. How does faith come? Paul says it this way. In the King James it says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The NIV says it this way. Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message and the message is heard through the word of Christ. In other words, we're hearing God's message and we respond to it. Something inside of us wells up. We we appropriate that word in our souls. Jesus is now challenging this official to act out in faith. Here the man wants to bring Jesus back to Capernaum, and you know what Jesus does? He challenges his faith. Listen to what he says in verse 50. You may go, your son will live. Wow. Isn't that great? You may go, your son will live. But what does he got to do? He's got to believe what Jesus says. Merrill Tenney is a scholar. He says this, by dismissing the official with the statement that his son was alive, Jesus created a dilemma of faith. 
In other words, he was forced to make the difficult choice between insisting on evidence and thus showing disbelief and of exercising faith without any tangible proof to encourage him. In other words, I want Jesus to come with me or do I just take him at his word? But if I just take him at his word, then I'm gonna go back to my son and that's all I have is the word of God. I'm standing on the naked word of God. That's all I have. And yet we read in the very next verse, verse, uh, <clears throat> verse 50, the second part of it, it says, the man took Jesus at his word and departed. What am I saying to us today? We gotta hear his word. Well, we gotta know his word. We gotta take his word. We gotta appropriate his word. We gotta stand on his word. We gotta believe on his word. We gotta act on his word. That's faith. Faith is saying, I believe you. I believe what you're saying. I'm gonna trust you. I'm gonna trust what you're saying. I'm gonna act on it. That's faith. It says, well, while he was, you know, you know, so often in our lives, I think that we have a tendency to want us to come to our fears or we wanna focus on the problem or we're focusing on the current reality. Sometimes, and I, and I say it this way to all of us, the reality is true. We're not living in denial, okay? But I'm gonna say this to all of us. Heaven and earth passes away, but God's word endures. In other words, my current situation is gonna pass away. My current dilemma is gonna pass away. It's all gonna go. The only thing that's gonna last forever is God's word. It's not a foolish person that says, I'm gonna stand on this word that is eternal, rather than, live in fear or sorrow or all the other issues in my current context because this current context is going to pass away. What's going to remain is the word of God. It says in verse 51, while he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that this boy was living. Hmm. Here we find the final emphasis of John in the story. The boy lives. Yet the word translated by John, usually when you use that word life, when John, John actually translates it here, the word he normally uses for eternal life. Interesting. I wonder why he did that. Craig Keener says, that, is it possible that John intends the restoration of life here as an allusion to Christ's gift of eternal life? Is this an allusion to that? Not only was the father relieved with the news about his son, but he was interested in knowing something. He said to the servants in verse 52, when he inquired as to the time when his, son's got, when his son got better, they said to him, listen to this, the fever left him yesterday at the seventh hour. John's gospel, the hours start from 6 a.m. Seventh hour is 1 p.m. What the, what the servant says is at 1 p.m. yesterday, your son's fever broke. At 1 p.m. yesterday, your son got better. You know what the man was doing at 1 p.m. yesterday? He was talking to Jesus. And at that very moment when Jesus said, you can go home now, your son lives, was the very moment that boy got better. That was the moment. Look at what it says. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had, son, had said, your son will live. And what was the result? So he and all his household believed. He moved past needing a miracle to believing in who Jesus is. 
Isn't that what Jesus was saying earlier? You guys are only seeking me for signs and miracles. What it should be doing, you should be seeking me to find out who I really am. And when you know who I really am, you'll have eternal life. Isn't that beautiful? The miracle was designed to help this man and family come to a life-transforming faith in Christ. Our crisis are designed to strengthen our faith in God. We can see in this story a positive outcome that led to faith. But what happens when the desire that we have doesn't materialize? I want to ask that question. Because how many here can say, Pastor, I prayed and God didn't answer? Let's, let's be real honest now. How many times have you and I prayed for something and God didn't answer the way we thought he should? Come on. My hand is up. You guys always pray and it always works out. How do we handle things when they don't improve or they get worse? How do we handle those moments? How do we handle those trials like Job when God seems distant and we don't understand what's happening? The trial is still designed to bring us to Jesus. Do you know, and I preached this series about a year and a half ago in the book of Job. How many remember now some of those points? God never told Job what was going on. God never answered Job's questions. This is shocking. But God did something better. God appeared to Job in his pain. By the way, that is an answer. It's just not the one Job wanted. And I'm going to suggest this thought that when you and I are in crisis and you and I are praying and you and I are saying, you know, God let me down. God didn't do what I asked. God's disappointing. He didn't answer my prayer. I'm going to just say something to you right now. Maybe what God was doing was to design you to move towards him in a totally different way. Because God was there through the whole season. God was there through the whole thing. God is there right now in your crisis. God's there in your situation. God's there in your disappointment. God's there in your sorrow. God's there in your suffering. And it's all designed so that you and I will come to Christ. And I'll tell you, it's a mercy Better to have been disappointed in this life and to have found Christ than to have lived a good life and missed the ultimate life. 